Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 34, 1 Samuel chapters 20 and 21. As we concluded our lesson in 1 Samuel chapter 20 last week, we were as an audience to Jonathan and David establishing a new covenant between them. And the covenant I speak of begins with the 12th verse of chapter 20, and it continues to be elaborated upon until the 23rd verse. Verse 12 begins, Yonatan said to Dawid, Adonai, the God of Israel is witness. See, this is a familiar vow formula that accompanies a covenant in the Bible. A vow is not a covenant. A covenant is not a vow. Rather, the covenant is the promise portion of the agreement, and the vow is the seal and validation of the covenant. In ancient times, the validation was to invoke the name of your God as the guarantor with the idea that if one of the parties broke the agreement, the guarantor God would take action to punish the violator. Thus, what we read here is actually in the original Hebrew, Yehovah Elohim Yisrael. Yehovah, the God of Israel. Yehovah is the God of of this covenant. Let's uh, reread that covenant. Open your Bibles to First uh, Samuel chapter 20. We're going to start reading at verse 12. That's page 321 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read verses 12 through 23. Yonatan said to Dawid, Adonai, the God of Israel, is witness. After I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, then if things look good for David, I will send and let you know. But if my father intends to do you harm, may and I do as much and more to me if I don't let you know and send you away so that you can go in peace. And may Adonai be with you, just as he used to be with my father. However, you are to show me Adonai's kindness, not only while I'm alive so that I do not die, but also after Adonai has eliminated every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth, you're to continue showing kindness to my family forever. Thus, Yonatan made a covenant with the family of David, adding, May Adonai seek its fulfillment even through David's enemies. Yonatan had David swear it again. Because of the love he had for him, he loved him as he loved himself. Yonatan said to him, Tomorrow is Rosh Chodesh. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The third day, hide yourself well in the same place as you did before. Stay by the departure stone. I will shoot three arrows to one side as if I were shooting at a target. Then I'll send my boy to recover them. And if I tell the boy... They're, they're here on this side of you. Take them, then come. It means that everything's peaceful for you. As Adonai lives, if there's nothing wrong, but then I'll tell the boy, 
but the arrows are out there beyond you. Then get going because Adonai is sending you away. As for the matter we discussed earlier, Adonai is between you and me forever. It's interesting to note that the terms of this agreement are bracketed with vowel language. The opening statement is, Adonai, the God of Israel, is witness. The closing statement is, Adonai is between me and you forever. What makes this a new covenant and different from the earlier one is that it expands those who are involved. The first covenant between Jonathan and David was one of loyal friendship between them. This new one takes another step. It extends that loyalty to Jonathan's and David's descendants, their future families. Now, I don't know for certain if it was intended as such, but I believe that this new covenant between David and Jonathan is a pattern for the new covenant that's sealed with the sacrificial blood of Yeshua. I've taught often that modern Christianity has assumed, wrongly, that because we have a so-called new covenant or New Testament, that all the earlier covenants, testaments, between God and Noah, God and Abraham, God and Moses, were rendered null and void. That the concept is that the new covenant replaces an older covenant. That's far from the biblical pattern. Rather, Holy Scripture demonstrates that each successive covenant is not a replacement for an earlier one, but rather it addresses other matters entirely, or it pushes the redemption agenda forward another step, or it extends the benefits and scope of the earlier ones. Just as there was established the initial covenant of loyal friendship between David and Jonathan, now here in chapter 20, the benefits and the scope of the covenant have been extended to their future descendants in this new one. So it is that the scope and benefits of the earlier biblical covenants that were made between the Lord and the Hebrews were extended to all the peoples of the earth. All tribes, all nations, meaning Gentile nations. The earlier covenants of God weren't abolished. Of course, there were caveats that made it clear that no one could enjoy the benefits of any of God's covenants if they weren't squarely in His camp. And that meant adopting the set of heavenly ideals that when taken as a whole, the Apostle Paul calls spiritual Israel or true Israel or the Israel of God. Now this new covenant agreement in 1 Samuel chapter 20 further assumes, you see, that David will be an authority over Jonathan. So this is where we see that the implied becomes the explicit. 
the shadow becomes the shape. We, as the audience listening in on their conversation, we've had the benefit now, for a couple of chapters, of knowing that God has secretly anointed David to be the king of Israel at the same time that Saul has been rejected. Now, while others who surrounded David and Saul may have had some suspicion, and maybe they speculated that something was up, in reality, only Samuel and Saul know that God has rejected Saul as king. And interestingly, no one knows that David was to be the new king, and that includes David himself. Samuel had indeed anointed David. But the scriptures imply that Samuel didn't even know for certain what that anointing signified. And so neither was David told. So as we see this scene between Jonathan and David unfolding, one must grasp that it was a combination of some kind of mysterious instinct within Jonathan accompanied by some strange and disturbing circumstances concerning his father, which caused him to conclude that David was soon going to be king. Now this has all kinds of important ramifications for Saul's family and for Jonathan personally and then Jonathan's familial offspring. The most immediate concern was that once David becomes king that he wouldn't turn on Jonathan and kill him, as was a rather typical thing for the new dynasty to perpetrate upon the former one in that day and age. But even more, this new covenant required David to show chesed, fidelity, faithfulness to Jonathan and to all of his descendants. And the reason that David owed this to Jonathan was because Jonathan willingly forfeited his customary right to succeed his father, Saul, to the throne of Israel. And because Jonathan put his own life on the line to show a greater loyalty to his friend David than to his own father and to his own family. Now once again in verse 17, we run into the statement that gives the reason that Yonatan was willing to give up so much and turn it over to David. It is said because he loved him as he loved himself. Now it's important that we see this in the dual context that's intended here. The first sense of it is to express this deep loyalty and connection of their souls through God who is the common point of that connection. Note how this connection between them has been established in much the same way as believers are interconnected through Yeshua. Now the second sense of this is as a political reality. Now recall that we've discussed that to love can be presented in the Bible in a number of different ways senses and meanings, and one of those is to express a proper and expected king-to-vassal relationship. That is, it was common terminology for that era to say that the king loved his vassal 
and that the vassal loved his king. In ancient Assyrian royal records is found the standard loyalty instructions that the general that the generals of Ashurbanipal, that king of the vast Assyrian Empire, formerly formally demanded that the kings and potentates of the many nations that he conquered declare. And it read this like this. Ki Nafshat Kunu Latar Amani. This translates to you must love him as you love yourselves. Obviously, this was referring to love in the sense of acceptance and cooperations on a political, not a personal level. So Jonathan was vowing not only to continue with loyalty in their personal relationship, but now also in this new changed political reality whereby David would become king and then Jonathan would become subject to that king. This also means that Jonathan no longer saw himself as subject to his father, Saul. Because it's impossible for Jonathan to serve both Saul and David. This, of course, is the playing out of a God principle that's going to be restated centuries later by Messiah. Luke 16.13 No servant can be a slave to two masters. For he will hate the one and love the second or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. It's all the more so in a very practical sense in this case because it's not possible for Jonathan to serve both the legitimate anointed king and the rejected anti-king of the same nation, of the same kingdom. And yet, how much do so many of us who claim loyalty to Jesus Christ attempt just that impossible dichotomy day after day? Painful reproof after painful reproof. Thoroughly convinced we can stand with one foot in the world appeasing Satan, the other in heaven appeasing God. We can simultaneously submit to our fleshly desire and obey our heavenly master in some kind of rational and workable compromise. Starting in verse 18. The plan for Jonathan to discover his father's true intentions towards David and for David to be informed of them is decided upon. David will not go to the Rosh Chodesh, the new moon festive meal, and sit at Saul's table as was customary. But Jonathan will. Now while Jonathan is gathering the information, David will remain in hiding. And then on the third day of the new moon celebration, he's to hide himself behind a certain mound or or stone out in the countryside. And Jonathan will come with a bow and arrows and a young servant boy. And Jonathan will shoot some arrows and he'll send the boy after them. 
And if he instructs the boy that the arrows are near to him, then this is the signal to David that there's no danger. But if Jonathan instructs the boy that the arrows are further out in the distance, beyond him, this is the signal that David is in harm's way and he needs to flee. Then that agreement is sealed with Jonathan's vow that Adonai is between you and me forever. It's understood that David makes himself part of this vow even though what we find here in the narrative is Jonathan's doing most of the talking. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Open your Bibles again to 1 Samuel 20. We're going to start reading at verse 24. 1 Samuel 20, starting at verse 24. So David hid himself in the countryside and when Rosh Chodesh came... The king sat down to eat his meal, and the king sat at his usual place by the wall. Jonathan stood, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. However, Saul didn't say anything that day because he was thinking, something's happened to him, he's unclean. Yes, that's it, he's un, he's, he isn't clean. Well, the day after Rosh Chodesh, the second day, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why isn't... Jesse's son come to the meal either yesterday or today and Jonathan answered Saul well David begged me to let him go to Bethlehem and he said please let me go because our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brother demanded that I come so now if you look on me favorably please let me go away and see my brothers that's why he hasn't come to the king's table and at that Saul flew into a rage at Jonathan and he said you crooked rebel don't I know that you've made this son of Yeshai your best friend? You don't care that you're shaming yourself and dishonoring your mother, do you? Because as long as the son of Yeshai lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be secure. Now, send him, bring him here to me. He deserves to die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul threw his spear at him aiming to kill. Jonathan couldn't, could no longer doubt that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan got up from the table in a fury. He ate no food the second day of the month because, both because he was upset over David and because his father had put him to shame. The next morning, Jonathan went out into the country. At the time, he had arranged with David, taking with him a young boy, and he told the boy, Now, run and find the arrows I'm about to shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy reached the place where the arrow was that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan shouted at the boy, Isn't the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan continued shouting after the boy, Quick, hurry, don't just stand there. Jonathan's boy gathered the arrows and returned it to his master. But the boy didn't understand anything about the matter. Only Jonathan and David understood. Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and he said to him, Go, carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David got up from a place south of the stone, fell face down on the ground, prostrated himself three times, and they kissed one another, wept each with the other, until it became too much for David. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of Adonai, that Adonai will be between me and you, between my descendants and yours, forever. Rosh Chodesh comes a few hours later at sundown. And it's time for the festive meal at Saul's table. And King Saul sits in his usual place 
the head of the table where his back's up against a wall. This was the customary place for royalty to sit because his back was protected from a sneak attack. And he could also then look out over the room and he could observe everything that was happening out in front of him. Abner, Saul's supreme general, sat next to him as both a symbol of his second-in-command status and as Saul's private guard. Rather surprisingly, the king said nothing about David's absence. Instead, we're told that in his private thoughts, Saul merely figured that David must have been in a ritually unclean state, Tameh, thus disqualified to eat this holy meal. Now, once again, we see how distorted the practice of the Torah laws had become. While Numbers 28 explains the God-ordained observance of Rosh Chodesh, we find that it is the priesthood that must preside over it, not the king. And that the sacred meal is for the priests, and thus must be eaten in the presence of the Lord, meeting at the sanctuary. There's no thought that the new moon observance meant that there was to be a special dinner meal eaten by the secular authority. And while there is certainly no no prohibition against laymen having a celebratory dinner for Rosh Chodesh, there was equally no authority for them to declare that such a meal was holy. Unless, perhaps, the meal contained some portion of meat that had been properly sacrificed to God on the altar. Otherwise, as is here with King Saul, this was essentially just some kind of man-made tradition whereby the ritual cleanness status probably shouldn't even matter in these circumstances. Newsflash. That which is not prohibited by God does not mean that what is permitted is holy. That which is not prohibited by God doesn't mean that what he does permit is holy. We don't have holy altars in churches even though we call them that. We don't have holy Christmas or Hanukkah holidays even though we often deem them that way. We don't have holy wars against our country's enemies even though our enemies may have godless evil in mind. If you want to know what's holy, check with God's word. In it and it alone, you will find what is and what is not holy. It's a closed case. We have no authority to add or subtract from God's list, no matter how good or pious that cause may seem to us. But that didn't stop Israel's leaders like Saul or later Jewish or Christian leadership from trying to establish holiness upon their own authority. The second day of Rosh Chodesh arrived. Again, a man-made observance that was assigned a holy aura. And once again, David didn't appear at King Saul's table. This time Saul asked Jonathan, what's going on? Why isn't David here? And Jonathan quotes this fabrication that he and David had prepared for just this occasion and that David had gone home to Bethlehem for a family feast and that Jonathan had authorized his absence. 
Well, that was just too much for the king. He just he flew into a rage and he cursed at his son. And the occasion that Jonathan says David is attending is in Hebrew, Zeva Mishpacha. This most literally means clan voluntary sacrifice. So the idea is that this family celebration indeed is supposed to follow the Levitical law concerning sacrificing. But since the Zeva is a voluntary class of sacrifice, it is here being coupled with a kind of annual clan-wide reunion of David's kin because the bulk of the meat in this kind of sacrifice can be used by the participants for a festive meal. It is thought that there was an altar in Bethlehem at one time as there were in many places throughout the Holy Lands. This arrangement of, a, of, of several altar and or sanctuary sites was not at all in line with the Torah laws ordaining only a single central sanctuary. But it seemed to have been the accepted norm at this time by the tribes and the clans. Now, no, no doubt the priests protested this to some degree, but it appears that by now... The priests had split up into factions and dedicated themselves to serve one sanctuary or cult site or another according to their personal loyalties and their personal preferences. Saul was so angry at Jonathan for allowing David to go home to his family rather than showing a greater loyalty to the king that he started shouting curses at Jonathan. He yells, Bain na'awat hamartut at his son, which means, you son of a rebellious woman? This is an insult to Jonathan. It's not a reference to his mother. It's like calling a man a dirty rat. There's no intent of blaming rats for this man's poor character. But Saul does make it a tad more personal. When in verse 30, he says, and this is literal, to the disgrace of your mother's nakedness. Kind of makes it sound a little nicer in the complete Jewish Bible. But again, Saul is not insulting Jonathan's mother. A mother's nakedness is referring to her private parts. The idea is that the female part of his mother, where birth occurs, has been shamed because of her son's disloyal actions towards his family. This is all very Middle Eastern cultural dialogue. Saul makes it clear that Jonathan's friendship with David has been a source of suspicion to Saul. And now claims that his suspicions have proved to be true. And then in verse 31, the crux of the matter becomes clear. As long as David is alive... Saul's dynasty, with Jonathan next to rule, won't become entrenched. David is indeed a danger to the throne, and Saul is perplexed as to why Jonathan just can't see that. Poor, naive Jonathan retorts with a defense now of his dear friend. What's he done? He says to his father. This further infuriates Saul to the point that he takes the javelin that's always in or near his hand and he 
throws it at Jonathan with full intent to kill him. Well, thy naivety instantly vanishes. Jonathan now realizes what David has been trying to tell him. What Saul has been so openly demonstrating. That the king won't stop at anything to put David in his grave. So now everything is out in the open. Saul knew God had rejected him as king, but he wasn't about to give up his throne to anyone but his son. Saul didn't know that God had chosen David. Nonetheless, David did bear all the earmarks of being a genuine threat to Saul's dynasty, so he had to be eliminated. Jonathan, on the other hand, was now convinced that David was the Lord's choice for king and that his father would do all in his power to prevent that from happening no matter how blasphemous or rebellious that thing was. You know, there's little discernible difference at this point between Saul and the Pharaoh of Israel's captivity. Jonathan was humiliated. He was angry. He was shaken. He left the table. He didn't eat. Now understand that the purpose of this meal wasn't to satisfy hunger. It was a supposedly sacred meal before the Lord. It was a religious ritual as tainted as it was. So to not partake of it was a serious decision that probably brought gasps from the servants and the guests. And what could have only been a depressed condition, Jonathan followed through with the plan. On the third day, he summons the young servant boy, gathered up his bow and arrow, went out to the countryside where David would be hiding. Third day. Three is significant. Because in the Bible, three is symbolic of divine influence. Using the arrow signals they had agreed upon, Jonathan indicated to David that his worst fears were true and that he would need to escape the area immediately. Jonathan dismissed the boy who had no idea about this plan, told him to go back to the city, which was probably Gibeah. And once they were alone, David emerged and they bade each other the saddest of farewells. David howled in anguish, not simply because he would have to leave behind the most loyal friend one could ever imagine because his life would never be the same. He was now a hunted fugitive who had done no wrong. It all seemed so unfair. All David had ever done was to fight Saul's wars, defeat Saul's enemies, soothe Saul's inner demons with music and show him the greatest deference at all times. I've thought about this long and hard. David had no idea that Saul was actually the one who better understood the reality of this situation. Saul and Jonathan knew that David was destined for the throne of Israel unless he could be stopped. David was totally unaware of this immense honor 
that the God of Israel had bestowed upon him, and he, he just he couldn't understand why things were going this way. What a lesson for us. Just like for Job, the things that happen to us in our lives may seem inexplicable at the time. But easily it could be the Lord working out His will through us. It may be that we suffer. But it also may be that we just don't have a need to know in God's eyes. This is perhaps the best definition of the trials that the Bible explains many of God's followers will endure. Will we be perplexed and confused, but remain faithful and continue to trust that the Lord is in control? Or will we melt? and start incessantly demanding you know, to know why, oh why God, why? In our prayers and our petitions to the Father. It's the true routes, folks. Don't lose heart if you've done the latter. So did David. In many of the Psalms, as David contended with God in his prayers, he would begin with a pleading or fearful, Oh, why? But end with a peaceful acceptance of God's sovereignty and agreement with the Lord's right to his life. This chapter ends with a tearful farewell, but you see, that's not the meaning of the go in peace statement by Jonathan to David. Go in peace is a technical legal term that more or less means, okay, we have a deal. The matter's concluded. And the matter is that a new covenant is now in force. And that Jonathan kept up his end of the covenant bargain by warning David of Saul's true intentions, by giving him, giving up any right that Jonathan held to the throne. So now he reminds David that this covenant bargain is not just between the two of them, it's between their descendants. It was a forever agreement. Let's move on to chapter 21. So David got up and left and Yonatan went back to the city. David went to see Achimelech, the Kohen in Nob. Achimelech came trembling to meet David and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David said to Achimelech, the Kohen, The king has sent me here on a mission, told me not to let anyone know its purpose or what I've been ordered to do. I've arranged a place where the guards are to meet me. Now, what do you have on hand? If you can spare five loaves of bread, give them to me or whatever there is. The priest answered David, I, I don't have any regular bread. However, there is consecrated bread, but only if the guards have, have abstained from women. And David answered the priest, 
Of course women have been kept away from us, uh, away from us, as on previous campaigns. Whenever I go out on campaign, the men's gear is clean, even if it's in an ordinary trip. How much more than today, when they will be putting something consecrated in their packs? So the Kohen gave him consecrated bread because there was no bread there other than the show bread that had been removed from before Adonai to be replaced by fresh, freshly baked bread on the day that the old bread was removed. And one of the servants of Saul happened to be there that day, detained before Adonai. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the head of Saul's shepherds. And David said to Achimelech, Perhaps you have here with you a, a spear or a sword. I brought neither my sword nor my weapons because the king's mission was so urgent. And the priest said, Well, the sword of Goliath, Goliath, the Philistine you killed in the Elah Valley is over there behind the ritual vest wrapped up in a cloth. If you want it, take it. It's the only one here. And David said, There's nothing like it. Give it to me. The same day David took flight from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. The servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, king of the land? Weren't they dancing and singing to each other? Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands? Those remarks weren't lost on David, and he became very much afraid of Achish, king of God. So as they were watching, he changed his behavior. He acted like a madman when they had hold of him, scratching marks on the doors of the city gate, drooling down his beard. And Akish said to his servants, Here, you see that man is Meshuga, Crazy. Why bring him to me? Am I short of crazy people? Is that why you brought me this one to go crazy on me? Must I have this one in my house? The first verse of this chapter really belongs as the last verse of chapter 20. So David got up and left in Jonathan and went back to the city. Well, anyway, in the next two episodes, we see a dark side emerge to David's character as he regularly employs lies and deception to escape King Saul's assassination attempts or at times to more easily achieve his own purposes. We're going to see in a couple of chapters... That although on the one hand he seems to be cunning and careful and, and the deception wasn't intended as evil, just as a means to avoid Saul and save his own neck, on the other hand, his actions will prove disastrous to many innocent people. Because that's what often happens when sin is casually committed. Verse 2 has David fleeing to Nob, which is a very short distance from Jerusalem. It's a little bit north. It's in the territory of Benjamin, not very far from Gibeah. And he goes to see Ahimelech, the priest. Now when the Bible says the priest, it's just code for the high priest. Ahimelech means my brother is king. He was the son of Ahitub and the great-grandson of Eli, Samuel's former mentor. He is one of at least two competing high priests living at this time. But unfortunately, Ahimelech was not of the God-authorized line of high priests. He was from the line of 
Ithamar. And when David shows up alone at Nob, the alarm bells go off for Ahimelech. This is suspicious. And so the priest emerges trembling before this renowned warrior whose name the young women chant in their songs. Why would such a well-known member of the king's court travel unescorted? Wouldn't that be a dangerous and foolhardy thing to do? Ahimelech has no idea what's just transpired between David, Saul, and Jonathan. But his instincts tell him something's not right. Ahimelech is also the brother of Ahiyah, my brother is God, who is Saul's personal priest. That means that David, who's always thinking two steps ahead, knows he can't be sure if he can trust Ahimelech. So he makes up a whopper of a story by telling the high priest that King Saul has sent him on a secret mission. And in order not to arouse any suspicion, the men who are with him are actually out in hiding. And they'll meet up with him shortly. So David asks for bread, which is one of the reasons he came there. Five loaves. If he told the priest that five loaves were just for himself, the priest would have known that something was amiss. The high priest explains that at the moment... The only bread available is what's just been retired from serving as the consecrated bread in the sanctuary. The priest is speaking of showbread. The law is that 12 loaves of specially prepared and consecrated bread are to be baked and placed in the tabernacle before the Lord. Then every Shabbat, they're to be exchanged for fresh ones. And the priest can eat the week old loaves. Now the showbread were unusually large loaves made from about 12 cups of flour apiece. Not only could no one but priests eat these weak old loaves of bread, but they had to be consumed at the sanctuary. Now what this tells us is that apparently some sort of, sanctu- some sort of sanctuary existed at Nob. What was it? What did it look like? Nobody really knows. Almost certainly, it was a tent of some sort, not a permanent building. But again, the sanctuary at Nob was by no means ever referred to in the Tanakh as being the central sanctuary or the one place where God established His name. It was just one of several that had been built since the divinely authorized wilderness tabernacle at Shiloh had fallen into such disrepair that it was finally abandoned. I, 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 think, I think maybe it's hard for us sometimes to get a mental picture of what this fact of the abandoned authorized sanctuary, this, this fractured priesthood, the competing high priests and all, all of that ought to mean to us so that we have a more complete picture of Hebrew society as it existed then. I think the best illustration I can come up with is of modern day Great Britain. At, at, at one time, 
This great nation was thoroughly Christian. But today it's almost devoid of any spirituality or religion except for Wicca and Islam. The magnificent churches and cathedrals of England's golden era of Christianity are now defunct. They are either boarded up, they've become museums, sold off as restaurant locations, or more recently turned into mosques. This new reality has happened at a relatively slow pace. So the full effect of it wasn't realized until the people started looking around and the churches were gone. But it's too late. It's now considered normal. And only a few lament what once was, and mostly that consists of startled foreigners who show up. The young British generation knows nothing else. So they pay no attention to the spiritual void that's overtaken them. This was Israel at the time of David's escape from Saul. The religious situation was confused and contorted. Who was Israel's ultimate human religious authority? It once was Samuel. But ever since Saul became king, Samuel became retired. So the answer to that important question depended on where you lived, who you asked. There were supposed to have been 48 Levitical cities for the the priests and the Levites to live in and perform their critical religious duties, all scattered throughout the Promised Land, funded by the 12 tribes. Never at any point did Israel attain that full number. Some of the priests and Levites turned to hiring themselves out to be private priests to wealthy families. We read about this back in the book of Judges. Others gave their allegiance to tribal and and clan leaders so that a, a ritual worship site of some sort could be erected and maintained so at least they could do they could perform something that resembled the Torah duties that they were born to do. And just as much so that they could make a living and their families would survive. Anyway, back to verse 5. The priest, likely pretty intimidated, offers David five of the consecrated loaves, but only under the condition that, the, that he and his phantom men were ritually clean. David assures him that he and his men are honorable, the men that don't exist. Honorable. They're on duty. Therefore, they had abstained from relations with women, which would have rendered them unclean, and this is what seemed to worry Ahimelech the most. The reality is the priest had no right. He had no right to offer common men consecrated bread. Lechem Kodesh. And the common men had no right to eat it. But the rules were so loosely applied in this era that Ahimelech didn't have any serious problem at least finding a way to comply with David's request. Besides, under the circumstances, one has to wonder just how holy these holy loaves actually were in God's eyes. However, 
To give the high priest the benefit of the doubt, the rabbis say that he employed the call Vomer argument to the problem. Recall that call Vomer is a theological means of balancing the light versus the heavy. The principle is that there were times when the 613 laws could conflict with one another. For instance, lying is a sin. But if one must lie to save the life of an innocent person, what should one do? The example I most often give of this is of Corey Tenboom in World War II, hiding Jews from the German authorities and lying to her government about it. The purpose was to save their lives and her actions were nothing short of heroic. But she broke the commandment to never lie and also to respect her human government. The rabbinical argument of Kal Vomer says that although it is indeed always a sin to lie, it is an even greater sin to help facilitate the taking of innocent life. Light versus heavy. She made the right choice. The high priest had a hungry man in front of him who had held himself up as representing the king on some crucial mission. And so compassion led the priest to love thy neighbor at the expense of obeying the law on who could eat consecrated bread. We're going to stop here and we'll pick up in chapter 21 the next time.